right, welcome back to our listeners to another edition of Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And joining us once again is our good, good friend who has joined us before on this podcast, Brother Brandon Johnson. Brandon, it's good to have you back, brother. Hey, guys. Thanks for inviting me again. I've always looked forward to invitation from y'all to come on the podcast. Well, brother, you're a you're a fun conversationalist. We really enjoy your insight and your input and what you add to our conversations and and your experience in in our topic that we're going to discuss uh, this afternoon is one that you is it's one that I think will contribute to the conversation immensely because all three of us have experienced what we're going to be talking about tonight in varying forms and to varying degrees, and that's the subject of disfellowship. Um, disfellowshipping, excommunication, whatever term you want to use for it. It's, it's that principle that most of our listeners will be able to understand having grown up in the churches of Christ. Most people know of at least one person or maybe even a family or maybe even a whole congregation that has been disfellowshipped by another congregation. And what disfellowshipping is for those who maybe don't understand or know what it is, it's exactly what it sounds like. As Christians, we're in fellowship with one another through Christ Jesus, and the idea is is that a fellow Christian commits a sin that is so egregious that they are no longer found, uh, they no longer find themselves under the grace of God, and as a result, um, fellowship to them is withdrawn. And what happens is, is instead of being joined together in our walk with God, we now have this wall of partition due to sin or, or whatever else, and we're no longer recognizing any fellowship between us. And as a result, there's a cooling that can happen within that relationship. And in some cases, things can get downright hostile and people can become enemies. And this is something that the Bible speaks to. It's something that the Bible does discuss and that we can read about in Scripture. But this is a concept and a practice that has been widely misapplied. It's been taken way out of context. And in many, many, many cases, it's the result, this practice as its practice, is an abuse of power and an abuse of the Scripture, which leads to harm and damage not only to people and families, but to the church as well. So it's something that we definitely need to discuss, and it's something that I think our listeners will appreciate. Yeah, this is something that I have I've done myself. I've disfellowshipped Christians in times past, and there are really three main passages, although there's a lot of different kind of one-off verses that can be used. But Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and 2 Thessalonians 3 are kind of the those are the three big passages that are often used when talking about this concept of disfellowshipping or withdrawing one's fellowship. And some even refer to it as excommunication, especially in the Catholic Church. But you did a great job just explaining overall what, what this concept entails. And usually it is prefaced with the idea that this is being done from a motivation of love because they people care about you. When I have withdrawn from people in times past, a lot of that I obviously regret now because I think I withdrew uh, from them over things that I no longer even believe are wrong. But uh, I, I really believed I was doing the right thing. I thought that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. So it was coming from a place of conviction. It was coming from a place of concern. It was coming from a place of what I would call tough love. And this is one of those topics where the Bible, when you just read it straight up, straight for, you take a straightforward approach, seems pretty clear. 
but I don't believe that the Bible should be approached in a straightforward way because that's not the way it's written. It's very contextually layered. And so when we're talking about some of these passages tonight, we're going to bring in not only some context, but also some alternative ways to understand these passages. And quite frankly, all three of us, me and Liam Brannon, we don't really know where we fall <laughs> as of as of right now on this topic. I think there are some clear markers that we would agree with and say, okay, I, I definitely am on board with this, but then the further we move away from that marker, I'm not sure. I think we'd all agree there are times where there are relationships that are toxic and there are individuals that are harmful. And so therefore we as individuals have to withdraw ourselves from, in, from from other people like that in order to perhaps protect ourselves or our family, protect our spiritual well-being, our mental well-being, even our physical well-being at times. Um, and then also there may be times when someone has disrupted a church for so many years that something has to be done. Once again, we're talking about that toxicity. And so I don't want to speak for anybody, but I'm, I'm thinking we would all agree that, yes, there are times when those types of lines have to be drawn. But as far as how much further do you take it, when those lines are drawn and all sorts of that type of stuff, that's when it gets gray in a hurry. And so I want to, though, Brandon, turn to you now and let you have the floor for a little while, because we've talked about from our perspectives, you know, I've withdrawn from people. I know times past, I think you have too. Lee, I don't know if you've ever actually officially, you're shaking your head. So yeah, you've withdrawn from folks in the times past. So we have been the, uh, we've been on the giving side, I guess, or should I say the taking side <laughs> of fellowship? We've been on offense before. We both, we've yes. all been on offense and we've all been on defense. So. And so, yeah, so we've, we've been on both sides, the giving and the taking of fellowship. And so Brandon, you especially, I would say, has probably the most challenging story I've ever heard of anyone I've ever known. And that's saying a lot because I've, I've known people with some pretty challenging stories when it comes to their spiritual life and, and how they have dealt with people as they change. But I don't know of any story that really can compete with yours and everything that you've had to go through. So if you want to just spend a little time unpacking that and tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Well, again, thanks guys for having me on. Uh, this fellowship is one of those things, I think probably like many issues that we have discussed in the past that I had it all figured out six, seven, eight years ago and uh, have only gone backwards since then. Now, now I have no idea where I stand on the, on the issue. Um, but that's okay. You know, living, a living uncertain is okay. That's what faith is about. Um, I grew up in a, in a very conservative upbringing, like many of you guys. Um, and like, Lee and Kevin both. And, uh, our church was active in withdrawing or disfellowshipping people. Um, it was taught in our church, but uh, especially in, in my specific home, well, both of my parents were firm believers in disfellowshipping other Christians who were not living up to their standard of faithfulness. Uh, even so much so as a, as a young kid, I was probably six or seven years old. Uh, my aunt and uncle got divorced was my, my mom's sister. And my parents did not approve, and uh, they withdrew fellowship or disfellowshipped uh, my aunt in that situation, uh, along with not only my parents but also my grandparents, which would have been, uh, which would have been just my aunt's uh, mom and dad. Uh, so I've I've experienced withdrawal and disfellowship from the time I was a small child, and uh, had many conversations with my parents about it. Once I uh, 
got to adulthood, um, I actually withdrew from my wife's uncle because at the time we believed his marriage was not scriptural. Has since changed and since repented for that and talked to him, and we have a, we have a much better relationship. But uh, once I uh, entered employed ministry, um, I was one of the few guys who would teach fairly regularly on withdrawal, fellowship, and discipline. Um, obviously not a popular subject, even in extremely conservative churches like the, uh, <laughs> like the churches of Christ that, uh, I would teach, uh, and preach for. Um, but then as yeah. I've, as I made my change into a more grace centered view of, of Christianity and more grace centered faith, um, that certainly didn't align with my family's views and with their beliefs. And having known that they had already withdrawn from people who they did not agree with, I, I realized that my own change would put me in jeopardy. And it certainly did. Um, after I changed on my view on instrumental music, changed on my my view of uh, hermeneutics and how we interpret scripture, uh, changed on my view about Lord's Supper and the frequency of that, that really rocked my my parents' world because th- they come from a it come from my entire family comes from a background that's extremely conservative church of Christ. And those are all issues that the conservative branch really, really holds to. And so, uh, yes. they, they just couldn't take that. Um, I got fired from the church that I was at for my views on those things, uh, which was fine. You know, that's, that's okay. Um, I had a backup plan, uh, as ministers are always concerned cause they're basically paid to believe and they're paid to believe what their church believes. So, uh, you know, that kind of yeah. puts you in a precarious situation with your finances, especially when you're supporting a family. So I got let go by my church because of my changed views on grace. And uh, that that was kind of the last straw for my my parents. That really was very unsettling to them. And so we started having some really difficult conversations. Well, my backup plan financially was a business that my dad and I were 50-50 owners in. Uh, we had a real estate business. And uh we were now at odds, spiritually speaking. I, I didn't feel like I was at odds with them, but they certainly felt like they were at odds with me. After about two or three months of yeah. kind of going back and forth, them wanting to have Bible studies with us, they they sent their preacher to come talk to me on four or five different occasions. Um, and they finally, you know, when it came right down to it, I said, guys, you know, I've, I've posed all my questions to you. You guys can't answer them. This is just kind of where I'm at. And, I, you know, if you don't agree, that's fine. But based on their perspective and their belief in scripture, it wasn't okay. And so they, they withdrew fellowship yeah. from, from me and, and kind of withdrew from my wife as well. Not, not so directly, but I mean, she's married to me, so she, she bears the brunt of it as well. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was in May of uh, 2015. And that obviously put our business in a really difficult situation, uh, because we were 50, 50 owners. Um, so we were forced basically into a stalemate. Either I had to buy them out or they had to buy me out and I didn't have the finances to buy them out. So they, they bought me out. And so I found myself within a matter of about three months out of a church, out of a preaching job, out of a business. And, and shortly thereafter, we had to sell our home, uh, cause we really didn't have anywhere to go or anything else to live off of. Uh, so that was, uh, that was my first experience being on the other side of the fence. You know, I'd always been the guy who disfellowshipped other people and withdrew fellowship and taught sermons on it, that that's what you needed to do with people who were living in sin. And for the first time I was on the receiving end of it and it wasn't pretty. Um, it's, it's sad how some people use disfellowship. It's not always done in a, in a Christian way or in a Christian manner. Uh, you know, one of the uh, passages in the New Testament talks about withdrawal, says that you're to admonish them as a brother, not treat them as an enemy. But my experience has always been that when someone has withdrawn from me, I have very much been treated as an enemy. 
character assassination, villainization, uh, you know, being kind of left out in the cold, uh, refusing to, you know, have any kind of conversation to, even for outside things. My dad, uh, my dad withdrew from me in, in May of 2015, along with my mom and both my, and, uh, one set of grandparents and both my sisters. Uh, and well, in September of 2018, my dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and, uh, we had had very, very little contact. Um, and that withdrawal process had been really hard, especially at that point, it became extremely heavy. Uh, cause I had a great relationship with my parents before, for, before this, I, you know, I don't agree with the biblical perspective and the biblical teaching that they imparted to me as a child. But as far as parents go, they were great. Uh, they, you know, they did a great job. They did the best they could with what they had. Uh, they were very loving and supportive, but so having that stripped away from me, even as an adult was hard. Well, then when I found out my dad had pancreatic cancer, and for those who don't know about pancreatic cancer, it's, it's usually a very quick process. There's not much that can be done. I think from his diagnosis date until uh, his death was like right at three months. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of in a frenzy wow, at this point. Oh, dude. Yeah. I hadn't seen my dad since 2015, hadn't spoken to my dad since 2015. And I realized, you know, he's, he's not long for this world. Uh, so you know, I really tried my best to put some of that stuff behind me that I, I won't sit here and tell you that I handled the being withdrawn from always gracefully as I would like to, as I would like to at this, you know, do now, I think I could do a better job at that. Um, so there was still some hard feelings. There was still some bitterness, but I tried to put that behind me at that point. Cause honestly, I just wanted to, you know, a, some time with my dad before he passed, but he was, he was not willing for that. We tried two or three different times and there was always some reason he was unwilling uh, to meet with me and he ended up passing away. Uh, never got to talk to him um, after he withdrew from us in 2015. In fact, uh, I was told his last wishes were that I would not attend his funeral. And so I was, I, the term I use uninvited from the funeral. Um, so needless to say, I, I have kind of a negative view of uh, disfellowship and, and withdrawal. It's probably a very warped view because I think it's very unbiblical the way that it was done. There's a lot of, you know, minor details that, that I've left out about conversations and things we've had. And, uh, you know, some of those things are things that were odd, like being withdrawn from because, uh, I was told that because I said, you know, look, I don't want to talk about this issue anymore. Well, we're going to withdraw from you because you won't talk about it anymore. Just this odd things like that. Um, but for the most part, yeah, I have a pretty negative view of, of withdrawal and disfellowship just from my own experience. Um, and that's really kind of changed my view of the whole thing uh, because I was very much for it, very much a proponent of it. In fact, I was very judgmental towards people who were hesitant to withdraw fellowship. Um, I would say probably at this point, the one really firm conclusion that I have come to on withdrawing fellowship from my own experiences, uh, I personally cannot support withdrawing from someone who is acting in good conscience. Um, and there may be some outside circumstances or, or odd circumstances that I might change my position on that. But as a general rule, I cannot support withdrawing from someone who's acting in good conscience. And here's why. Withdrawing is done by a lot of people to punish or discipline someone who is, who they believe is acting in sin. Well, when you do that to someone who is behaving and acting in good conscience, it go. It's not. It's not interpreted as punishment. It's interpreted as persecution. Mm -hmm. 
And so it has the yeah. exact opposite effect. Um, if anything, this, the experience that I went through with my family is it just resolved me that much more that I was doing the right thing. I mean, it feels like persecution because you're sitting here saying, I, I'm not doing this because I want to do the wrong thing. I, I hold these positions that I hold and I'm doing what I'm doing because I believe it's right. I believe this is what pleases God. I believe this is what scripture tells me I ought to do. And then to be withdrawn from for it, it, it kind of just cement you even that much more into this is the direction I need to go. I'm just being persecuted for the cause of Christ. Um, and it, it removes all opportunity for conversation. Um, if, if someone truly is in yeah. error, when you withdraw from, you no longer have that ability to, to reason with them or for them to ask questions or to, you know, to pose questions or to bounce things off you. Even if you disagree, uh, once you cut that line of communication, it's extremely difficult to reinstate it. So I have some other thoughts and feelings about it. I'm sure we'll get into, but you know, that's kind of my story and my experience with withdrawal fellowship and, and, uh, you know, disfellowship is that, uh, it's, I sure view it differently after having been the guy who received it rather than the one dishing it out. <laughs> it's a whole lot different when you're on defense instead of offense. That's for sure. But brother, you know, you've, you've shared some of that with, with me in the past, you know, whenever we've got together and had other conversations, but I've never heard pretty much the whole you, you know, the whole story in one shot. And I know there's more details that, that you have shared before that you didn't get into. And I'm sure there's more that you didn't share now that even I'm not privy to, but man, it's just, it's mind blowing. And whenever I hear that, it's, it's especially in light of some of these scriptures that, that Kevin, that you mentioned just a little bit ago, and we'll read some of those later just to provide a little bit more context to the discussion, but it just, it's, it blows my mind that, that I once held that position that the right thing to do would be to, you know, harshly discipline somebody because of a matter of opinion or a matter of disagreement. And, you know, what, what you described, Brandon, it's, it's, it's very similar to an event that happened in our family whenever I was somewhat on offense, but, but wasn't necessarily, um, my sister-in-law who's a listener of the podcast. Hello. I love you. Um, she grew up within the churches of Christ. Um, her, my stepmom, stepmom, that's not right. My mother-in-law, she converted whenever my wife was about 10 or 11. And my sister-in-law, I think at the time was either 13 or 14. So she was in it during her teenage years. It was a tumultuous period. There's a lot that went on in their lives that, that colored that experience. Um, but she ended up marrying someone that, that wasn't a member of the churches of Christ. He, he wasn't even really a Christian. He's not a Christian. He's, he's an atheist. He's, he's a good enough dude. Um, but anyway, they got married and my in-laws wouldn't attend the, the wedding at all. Well, they divorced later and there was some question over whether or not her divorce was a quote scriptural divorce. And whenever she remarried, uh, not too long ago, just a few years ago, um, my other sister-in-law and brother-in-law withdrew from her and they put a lot of pressure on me and a lot of pressure on my wife and a lot of pressure on my mother-in-law and father-in-law that we needed to withdraw too, because this remarriage, we don't know that it's, that it's in fact a scriptural marriage. And, and that led to a lot of friction in the family, because even though I was more than willing to withdraw from people, I'd withdrawn from other members of the one cup group of the churches of Christ because of a stance they had taken with another congregation. And that's, that's another story we may get into. We may not, 
But what you said, Brandon, reminded me of this because you said that it shuts down any conversation that you can have with somebody. It shuts down any way that you can then positively influence someone. And whenever we look at the context, especially of 1 Corinthians 5, and we see what the purpose of that disfellowshipping is and why it's supposed to work the way it's supposed to work, the question that I would ask over and again is if we withdraw from her and we have nothing to do with her, and at this point she's not involved with the church at all. She's not attending worship anywhere. She's not a member of a congregation, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm saying, you know, if the ultimate goal is for her to come back, how are we going to influence her to come back if we don't have anything to do with her? If we never have any conversation, how are we going to wield any sort of, of influence with her to get her to come back to, quote, the truth? And this is something that went on for a long time. And I mean, there's still friction over it. But long story short, though, even being in the middle of it and not sure whether to be on offense or defense, it, even then it's hard. And it's it's one of these things that should be from what Jesus says in Matthew 18. I believe that disfellowship is one of those things that should absolutely 100% be a measure of last resort. It, it shouldn't be the first thing we go to. But so often, especially guys like I was, Brandon like you were, Kevin like you were, it's one of the first things we want to jump to. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 18, you know, if your brother sins against you, and, and it's funny because that means that he has injured you in some way. He has done something wrong against you. He has caused you a measure of harm. But we take it to mean our brother disagrees with us on a particular doctrinal topic or a particular doctrinal practice. And if he, you know, believes the wrong thing about the cup, if he believes the wrong thing about instrumental music, or if he's extending fellowship to another congregation or another group of people that we don't believe we ought to be in fellowship with or recognize fellowship with him, well, then we're going to go to him. And Jesus said, if, he, if he's injured you, you go to him. And you hash it out. You work it out. If that doesn't work, you go back and you take two or three witnesses with you. You take some other people to have another conversation. And Jesus doesn't say how many times you go to him. He doesn't say how many times you take those two or three witnesses to him. Anyway, then he says, if he still won't hear you, take him before the church. And if he, you know, if he won't hear the church and still won't repent, well, then let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. So in terms of Matthew 18, we have taken that so far out of context because we're not looking at this as people that have injured us, people that have maybe stolen from us or tried to, you know, take our wives from us or who tried to beat us up in a back alley one night or, or whatever the case may be. We look at it as anyone that disagrees with us on any particular point of doctrine, and we want to jump into express lane towards that third option. But from what Jesus says, I mean, my understanding of this now is that this fellowship is not a matter to take lightly. It's not something, and Brandon and I agree 100%, that it's not something that you should do or, and it's not right to do against someone who is acting in terms of their faith in good conscience. And it is an absolute measure of last resort when sin is blatant and actively, and they're actively involved in that in their lives. Um, and, and that gets more into 1 Corinthians 5, but it's... Even whenever you're on the defensive part of that, it hurts. And I've been withdrawn from not nearly to the extent that you have been, brother. But even whenever it's done in a light way, and by light way, I mean that it's it's other people that I'm just only tangentially associated with, even then it still hurts because you feel as though 
everything that you have done, the fruits of the spirit you manifest in your life, the perspective on grace that you may have in recognizing God as a God of love and Jesus as, you know, the very son of God, who is the ultimate expression of love and his sacrifice for mankind, you know, and the fact that God loves us in spite of our flaws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that even in that I'm being villainized for holding a different opinion. I'm being invalidated. It's, 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 it's a really bizarre place to be. It is. And yeah, Brandon, I first want to say thank you for sharing that uh, story and just going into detail, because I think that that's something that a lot of people have experienced, especially who's listening to this podcast to some, to some extent, not the extent that you went through. I mean, there, there may be out there. I just am not aware of it, but I'm sure there's a lot of people who can relate. And just going through that, you kept saying, you know, after I went through it, this is why my view changed. And that tends to be an important facet in understanding scripture is, you know, just just ask Galileo, right? I mean, when the world outside of the Bible teaches us something about the Bible and it, for lack of better words, gives us more information to help us better understand it, I think we need to listen to it. And I think we need to start re-examining, okay, what, what, what is really going on here? How should we handle this situation? It doesn't mean we should erase what the Bible says. It doesn't mean that we should ignore it or act like it doesn't exist. But I believe that we have to be willing to reconsider it. We need to be willing to say, okay, well, what was actually taking place here? What was the situation? And even just the way that we approach the Bible, are we approaching the Bible straightforwardly? Are we approaching it with absolute authority? Or are we approaching it in such a way where it's contextually layered and it has what I like to call circumscribed authority? That is, it's it's limited in its authority, meaning that we have to take outside resources to to help us better understand scripture. And that's scary for a lot of people because people start hearing, oh, well, outside resources, what are you talking about? Well, we have to be willing to let science, archaeology, psychology, the things that we do study as we learn, as we develop to help us better understand what is written in the Bible. I mean, we don't go to the Bible as a reproductive biology book, at least I hope not. Because we now know that the type of biology taught in the Bible is not actually how biology works, but it was their understanding of how biology worked at that time. And so I bring that up because I think first and foremost, the way that we approach Scripture, our expectations on what we think Scripture should do, that has to be properly calculated. We have to understand what's going on and how should we be, for lack of better words, using the Bible, if we should really be using the Bible at all, that almost sounds degrading, but how are we relating to the Bible might be a better word and a better way to explain that. And so in your case, your family took these scriptures and they weaponized them. And in all of the different examples of withdrawal, nothing paralleled uh, the quote unquote offense that they had against you. There, there was, I mean, nothing even came close to that. You weren't sleeping with your stepmother. You know, you weren't involved in an incestuous relationship. Uh, you weren't out uh, defaming individuals. You weren't out practicing uh, idolatry. You, you didn't quit your job, which is, by the way, what Second Thessalonians is talking about. You know, we could get into a, a really good discussion about Christians who decide to opt out 
and uh, just take money uh, when they have an opportunity to work. Well, should we withdraw from them because of Second Thessalonians three? So there, there's a lot that we have to take within context. And what ends up happening is we take the Bible, we weaponize it, and then we overextend it. And that really is what happened with you. That and, and I've done the same thing. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm I'm guilty of the same thing. And that's what's so dangerous about having a certain expectation. Uh, on the scripture, projecting this expectation, saying, okay, this is what the scriptures are supposed to do. Some, I disagree with Brandon. I disagree with Lee. What does the Bible say? Well, I've got to withdraw from them if they don't change and see things just like me. That's not even really the biblical concept of withdrawal anyway, of what we see in scripture. But I was going to ask you, how has your view, I know your, your views changed, but how do you understand some of these passages now, like Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians? What how do you relate to those passages? And when you come across those, what's your understanding? Do you agree with Paul? Do you think maybe Paul was overstepping his bounds, which is certainly a, a possibility. Some scholars believe that's the case, just like when he How told the— dare you, Kevin? <laughs> I'm sorry. Keep going. <laughs> hey, well, you know, Paul, hey, Paul told the Judaizing teachers to cut their penises off. So there are times, certainly, when Paul— I He think, may have over, overstepped a little. Overstepped yeah. his bounds. But, you know, and then other people say, well, Paul was just dealing with a very specific situation here. But wh- how do you relate to those passages and— how do you believe that they should be understood and applied in today's culture, if applied at all? Well, as I stated earlier, I'm, I'm still very undecided uh, on this issue on a lot of a lot of the details. Um, it's hard, I find it difficult for me to take those passages and be um, unbiased. Um, after being the guy who was withdrawn from, albeit I, I believe wrongfully withdrawn from, I find it difficult to approach them and, and not see myself through that lens. Um, I do think uh, a lot of them ap- apply in the sense of a toxic person. Um, some of the stuff we've already talked about, where you have someone who's, you know, a spiritual detriment in your life. You have someone who's wreaking havoc in a church because of discord and slander, gossip whatever it might be. I think it certainly fits in those scenarios. Um, I do think there needs to be some better interpretation of things. And I I don't claim to have all the interpretive answers to some of those passages. I'll share one that uh, is not mine. Um, Someone shared it with me and I'm not a hundred percent bought into it, but I think it does. I think it does offer another explanation. Uh, When Jesus talks about uh, from Matthew 18, that his conclusion is let them be to you as a heat, as a publican and and a heathen. Um, and this particular friend of mine said, well, that's fine. How did Jesus treat publicans and sinners? He sat down and ate with them and associated with them. And so his understanding of that passage is Jesus isn't saying that you should completely exclude them, but rather you should, you give extra emphasis to try to bring them into the fold. Again, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm a hundred percent with that, but I do think there are some other explanations that we haven't, at least some of us in the very who came from the very conservative uh, churches, haven't looked at and haven't studied. We just parroted what was taught to us, uh, or we did, as you said, Kevin. Yeah. We approached scripture very too directly rather than looking at the context and all the layers. Um, to be fairly honest, brother, there's there's a lot of those uh, those three main passages I still struggle with because of of my own experience. 
Well, I think when you have an experience like yours, man, that's, that's completely fair. I mean, and I really appreciate how honest you are about that and say, Oh no, I'm just as objective as I can be. And if, you know, and if you were saying that, I'd be like, bro, how can you be objective having <laughs> experienced that? I mean, that's just, that's nutty. That's crazy. Yeah. And one, one thing I wanted to bring up too, because I just kind of mentioned it in passing, but William Lane Craig, Dr. William Lane Craig, some of our audience may be familiar with him. I think I think you guys probably are too. He is still considered a, a pretty conservative scholar. And even he has a series on inspiration where he focuses on the human aspect of the Bible and how we have to be very careful when we're reading the Bible, any portions of the Bible that seem to be um, not in keeping with kind of the the gospel message, especially when we know someone's personality from Scripture. For example, he gives the um, he gives David as one example, and he talks about how when David in Psalm one thirty nine nineteen through twenty four uh, speaks of taking his enemies' children, little babies, and dashing their heads against the rocks, he says we shouldn't assume this is coming from the heart of God, but this is coming from the raw emotions of David. And I jokingly a minute ago talked about Paul telling the uh, Judaizing teachers in Galatians chapter five to just go ahead. If they're going to say that you have to be circumcised to be saved, we'll go ahead and cut the whole thing off. And um, a lot of Christians appeal to that or point to that as an appeal to say this is something that we shouldn't really fall in line. Paul was this was Paul was clearly excited here. He was frustrated. And this this should not be seen as coming from the heart of God. You can't take a statement that says, treat others the way you want to be treated, be kind, don't retaliate, and then say, and cut your penis off. That just really doesn't <laughs> line up together. And so we have to be willing to read the Bible critically. And uh, so once again, even, even you know, just about every progressive scholar is going gonna, is gonna to tell you that. But sometimes people write that off and go, oh, that's just the progressives. That's the liberals. But even your more conservative scholars, such as Dr. William Lane Craig, he's going to say, and in fact, he he quoted this. He said there are many, or I, I quote from him, he says, there are many times in scripture when an author or speaker expresses their hearts, thoughts, and emotions, and even advice, but this does not mean it always aligns with God's. So when Paul is writing here in 1 Corinthians 5 and even 2 Thessalonians First of all, I think we have to understand that he's dealing with specific situations. When Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he was not writing to Kevin Pendergrass. He was not writing to Dayspring Church of Christ. He was not writing to your church. He was not writing to anybody's churches today. He was writing to one church, one congregation, and that is the church at Corinth, period. He was dealing with a very specific situation. And if, if you allow me about a minute or two, I just want to kind of delve into a little bit of the context to show why we cannot take a direct approach to this passage, if that's okay. Yeah, you bet. It's our podcast. We can do what we want. We can do what we want to, man. Um, Okay, so the the reason I want to bring this up is because as I was studying this, first and foremost, he's talking about incest is what he's dealing with. And he opens up the chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, by saying that this type of sexual immorality this is something that not even the pagans tolerate. <laughs> and so this is something that is seen as being bad. This is not just a matter of interpretive disagreement. This isn't just someone doing something and another person not liking it. 
Paul begins by saying, this is so bad that even the world, the immoral world thinks this is bad. And what's happening is a man uh, was having sex with his father's wife. Now, the, the phrase the phrase used, father's wife, is very interesting because, well, isn't father's wife, doesn't that just mean mother? Well, in context, most believe this is referring to his stepmother because of the idiom that he uses. And the word his father's wife or father's wife is the Hebrew form of expression for stepmother. You can go all the way back to Leviticus chapter 18, verses 7 through 8, where there is a contrast drawn between a man's mother referring to his biological mother versus his father's wife, which is referring to his stepmother. And so most scholars therefore believe that this is talking about him engaging in sexual relations with his stepmother. Now, some believe that that he was actually married to his stepmother. Some believe that she was more or less just kind of a, a concubine. And the reason being is because the word have in the Greek, it could connote marriage, but it also could just be referring to a sexual relationship. We see this in John chapter four, verse 18, where Jesus asked the one at the well, at the well, well, you know, how many husbands or, you know, who's your husband or are you married? She goes, well, I don't have a husband. I've been married and I have had five husbands, but I'm with a man right now, but he's not my husband, but the man I have is, you know, this is who I'm living with. And that's that same word. And Jesus says, you have spoken rightly. You, you, you have no husband, but the man you have, which is the one you're shacking up with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the point being is that we don't know. Scholars try to speak with certainty on this saying, we know that they were married. Uh, we know that they weren't married. We simply don't know. We just know that they were getting it on. They were having, they were having a sexual relationship. But that's just what we kind of read from the immediate text. What's interesting is that a lot of scholars who've really parsed this out believe that there's a lot more going on within context, which is why Paul is so frustrated. So why did Paul say that not even the Gentiles, not even the Romans are participating in, uh, the pagans are participating in this type of of, uh, quote-unquote lawless behavior? Well, for starters, um, according to Roman law during this time, it was a sin for a son to marry his stepmother. So they're they're not even, aside from not keeping in line with what Paul would say is the gospel, they're not even keeping in line with the laws of the land. I mean, you know, it's like even the pagans don't tolerate this kind of stuff. But a lot of the context that can be missing, because unfortunately, we don't tend to really study our Bibles, right? We read our Bibles and then we think we're Bible students, but we really don't dig deeper. We don't really uh, parse this out further. But a lot of people believe that this man was very wealthy. Um, For example, one commentator, John Crowell, he suggests that the incestuous man here is one of Paul's opponents in the church and that he was a patron of Corinth. And as such, he would have been in a position of power. And that because of that, a lot of these members, they didn't want to upset him. They didn't want to make him mad. Um, but here's here's where things get even more interesting. Andrew Clark goes on to suggest that as a tactic in preserving his father's estate, that this man married his, his stepmother to do so. This was more out of greed. And in his commentary, he says, one of the significant aspects of Roman marriage was the dowry which came with the bride as a gift from her father. Roman law stipulated that upon the dissolution of the marriage, so after divorce, the dowry would return to the father's bride. 
or, or excuse me, the bride's father. However, the woman could make a claim to retain the dowry should she marry again. Clark then goes on to make this argument that the underlying motive here for this incestuous relationship was actually financial. And so he goes on to say it's possible to argue, although it's clear that the text allows no certainty, that the motivation for the incestuous relationship was financial. If this is the case, it adds weight to the suggestion that the relationship was between a man and a woman of some social standing. Now, the reason I bring that up is because this is just another possibility, according to these commentators and scholars, that it could be the case, which goes along with what Paul goes on to talk about, with not just talking about this incestual relationship, but also talking about greed <laughs> at the same time. And so when we, when we paint the, this, this full picture, it could be the case that this is a man who gives a lot of money, he's wealthy, he has high social status, Either uh, most most believe that his father probably didn't die because in Second Corinthians chapter um, or in Second Corinthians chapter seven, I believe. In fact, let me pull this. See if I have this. Yeah, Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse twelve. When Paul's alluding back to this, he says, "So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God." So it seems like the father may have still been living, um, but either way, if whether he died or whether he was divorced, the point is, is that this man saw an opportunity to take his stepmother as a wife and be able to continue his greed. Is that, do we know that for sure? No, we don't. But we don't know a lot of things for sure. This is a quite ambiguous text in 1 Corinthians 5. What we do know is that the sin was incest. And so to apply 1 Corinthians 5 in any other way, you have to be very, very careful. Now, yes, Paul does go on to list a few sins in the later chapter of saying, okay, you know, 1 Corinthians 5, not just these, not just this man, but anyone who participates in this type of stuff you need to withdraw from him. But the point being is that it's very easy just to look at a verse, to take it, and then start trying to apply it to every single situation without realizing just how situational this really was. Yeah, and I think that right there is the rub because we tend to want to bring our own practices, traditions, interpretations to the table whenever we study. And I, I think a lot of times, I, I really do believe that most people really make an effort to not do that. I do think that practically everybody does that on a subconscious level, at least in some way. I, I know that I do it. I try to recognize it. I try to keep that out of things, but it's, it's easy to want to find what you're wanting to find. Yeah. And it's easy to find what you want to find in first Corinthians five, because remember I was going around, you know, marking people or disfellowshipping people or, or assenting to the disfellowshipping of, of individuals or whole groups. Well, I could find what I wanted to find. I wanted to justify what I was already doing. And it's easy to find that in first Corinthians five, but just like you said, brother, whenever you dig a little deeper and you see how contextual this is, None of the people I disfellowshipped were involved in incest. I mean, none of these people that I disfellowshipped <laughs> had taken their father's wife. I mean, you know, none of them had shacked up with their stepmom. So you can't really make a perfect parallel there. I think that I think that you could make the case that there are some guiding principles that one can use should there be blatant overt sin involved. But just like you said, man, you have to be really, really careful. And in virtually every case, 
And in hindsight, in every single case I was a part of, it would be incredibly inappropriate to use first Corinthians five as a justification for that. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, going back to first Corinthians five, you know, Paul went on in verse 10 to say, not at all, meaning the people of this world, um, are the greedy are the swindlers or idolaters. Cause he says, in this case, you would have to leave the world. But he says, but I, I'm writing to you that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a, a brother or sister, but who is sexually immoral, specifically within context of this incestuous relationship, are greedy. How many people do you know who have ever been withdrawn from with the charge of they were too greedy? <laughs> like, I, like, like, I know a lot of people are like, well, they didn't show up to Sunday night worship assembly, so we're going to withdraw from them, or they did this or that. How I, I have yet to meet anyone or have ever heard of any case. And I've looked because when I was trying to be a faithful disciple of, of literalism and when it comes to the Bible, I was trying to find, okay, has anybody actually ever withdrawn fellowship on the basis of you're greedy? You're greedy, and so I'm going to deliver your soul, your little greedy soul to Satan, and hopefully you're going to repent. We don't, we don't, you don't hear that kind of stuff. But yeah, what we do is we go, oh, but I'm taking the... Do what, Brandon? I was going to say... Uh... Honestly, if you look at the specifics of Scripture of who we're to withdraw from, I would say 90% of those specifics, we never withdraw over. The things that we do withdraw over are no. the things that are not specified. Yeah. Well, same thing with 2 Thessalonians 3. We're not withdrawing from people who because they're lazy. I mean, when was the last time you, once again, when was the last time you ever heard somebody say, we're going to withdraw from, from oh, oh, brother John because he's too lazy? And sister so and so because she's too she's too greedy. Yeah, I mean, I mean these these are characteristics. And assuming that that we can even take what Paul said here as as having some authority to it, which in and of itself I believe is debatable, but that's for another podcast episode. But even then, we would we have to look at this and say Paul is speaking of someone who is characteristically this way and who is putting a stain on Christianity. You know, there, there are some Christians today, especially now in America, the way things have gone, especially the past year, where I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to associate with a lot of these self-proclaimed Christians because they do not represent what I believe Christianity is. And, and, and I do think that there are times and places where those lines have to be drawn. But I think by and large, when we do draw them, we're not using the same stick, nor are we drawing the same lines that we even find in the Bible to begin with. But Brandon, you brought up an interesting point toward the beginning of how you believe, with the exception, of course, if someone is being abused or if someone's in danger, those types of exceptions aside, if someone is doing something, let's take something like alcohol. I grew up in a church, and I know both of you did too, who taught or where they taught it was wrong to drink alcohol at all. Social drinking was was wrong. It wasn't just drunkenness. Social drinking was wrong. And so let's say that there was someone at the congregation who they actually would have a glass of wine with their spouse on Friday nights, or they would uh, you know have a beer and watch a game every now and then. Well, if if I heard about that and I believe that that was wrong, then uh, what would I do? <laughs> you know, what what I would I'd say? You don't need to do this. This is sin. And I would go to them and try to. And I did. There was actually someone at a congregation I went to. I found out uh, they they were drinking on on Saturdays when they were watching football. And I said, Look, this is sin. And I'm coming to you as a brother in Christ. And he says, Kevin, I don't get drunk. 
I, I've never struggled with drunkenness. I just, I just have a beer every now and then, and uh, I, I don't see anything wrong with it. In that case, I would used to say, well, it doesn't matter whether they see anything wrong with it or not. It is sin, and so therefore we need to withdraw, and I need to continue the next step of this withdrawal process. But now, just like you, Brandon, I, I agree that with the exceptions of someone, if they're abused or if they're in a dangerous situation, if someone's just holding a different conviction like that, uh, really withdrawal serves no purpose. If someone does not agree and believe that what they are doing is wrong for them or sin or however you want to phrase it, then withdrawing, trying to punish someone who doesn't believe they've done anything deserving of punishment just doesn't make any sense. Because at the end of the day, discipline means to be educated, right? That's what it comes down to. Well, if I don't agree with you, then there's no discipline involved. If I, if, if I already feel like I've been educated on this subject and I disagree with your conclusion, then you saying you're going to withdraw from me, okay, I mean, that's fine, but that's not putting me to shame. Like, like if someone says, well, I've withdrawn from Kevin because he doesn't think there's anything wrong with using instrumental music. Ooh, like, and I'm not being mean or sarcastic. I'm just saying like, that doesn't shame me because I don't believe it's wrong. When you look at 1 Corinthians 5 and even Matthew 18, the point is to bring this person to, a, to, to, to a real, not just a realization, but like, hey, you know this is wrong. You know this is something you shouldn't be doing. And even I want to go back to Matthew 18 real quick because within that context, Brandon, I, I want to talk to you about this for a moment to get your perspective because in this context, this appears to be dealing with individuals who agree that what the offending party has done is something they all believe and acknowledge to be wrong. And once again, this isn't an interpretive difference, but something that is understood by all parties to be wrong, including not only the offended, but also the offender, the witnesses and the church as a whole. And so this text is assumptive that everyone is in agreement uh, with at least the practice itself or whatever happened, whoever, you know, if someone hurt someone, everyone agrees that this took place. So this does not address if the offender disagrees with the accusation. It doesn't address if the witness ends up siding with the other side in the process. And it certainly doesn't address if the church ends up uh, disagreeing with the accusation. And so, you know, that that to me is so important. I just want to kind of bring that into this conversation of what really made you change your position. It was it just your experience that unless the party who has done something that the other party believes is wrong, unless they also are willing to admit, yeah, I don't need to be doing this, then it's really, really isn't going to do much good. It's not. Um, you bring up Matthew 18, and I, th I think a lot of this is is specific contextual issues. Like Matthew 18 is, a, is about me hurting yeah. you. Most of the time when we, the yeah, yeah. withdrawal that, that we personally experienced or when we withdrew from someone else, it had nothing to do with personal offense. It had everything to do with, I disagree with your conclusion or you disagree with my conclusion or you teaching something that I don't agree with or I'm teaching something you don't agree with. What Jesus is talking about is, is a personal hurt. Uh, you might some of these passages that talk about withdrawal talk about you know greed and slander and gossip. If somebody is assassinating your character and telling lies about you, someone has stolen from you, someone has a uh, you know taken advantage of you financially. Cause I mean, these damage are, or cause harm. Yeah, exactly. These are real personal hurts that nobody's really going to disagree with. I think is what Jesus is talking about. So to go to Matthew eighteen and to rip that out of context and say, hey, you know. 
Kevin now believes that instrumental music is okay, and and we know that that's you know that endangers biblical authority, and he's not using proper hermeneutics. So we need to disfellowship him, so nobody's going to follow that. Is a complete abuse of Matthew eighteen, and I, and for the most part, I think most of the time, at least that I withdrew from someone or taught that we should, I was abusing scripture in context. I was taking it out of context and using it however I wanted to justify my current beliefs. Uh, and I think a lot of times, for the most part, when you look at at the teaching of withdrawal in scripture, I think for the most part, it deals with personally hurting someone or personally uh, damaging the church. You know, you're causing chaos in the church or you're personally hurting someone else. And honestly, that goes back to the core of the gospel. You you love God with all your being and you love your neighbor as yourself. So these these offenses that you withdraw from someone are typically either you're you're denying uh, you're, you're denying the gospel in the sense of you're denying the resurrection of Jesus and you're causing people to quit Jesus altogether, or you are hurting your neighbor, intentionally hurting your neighbor, and oftentimes continually hurting your neighbor. And so you you do need to be pulled away from or withdrawn from in that instance. So to take it and use it in the way that we did and oftentimes have been used against us, I do believe is completely out of context. Yeah, with Matthew 18, Going back to the context, Jesus had just talked about not causing anyone to stumble and those personal offenses. And you're right, Matthew 18 is not under the under the banner of doctrinal differences or doctrinal disagreements. It's about someone who clearly hurts somebody else and they're not willing to admit it. They're not willing to to change or whatever it might be. Um, perhaps they're they're continuing to hurt them. They're continuing to abuse them. And so when you get to 1 Corinthians 5, we've already discussed this. When you break all of those th- types of things down, you know, why, why was this such a bad thing? Well, as, as we looked at the, po- the context, possibly it could be that this man not only was doing something that was wrong through, through th- against the incestuous laws, which is very interesting itself because, um, you know, why, why would, uh, would that have been such a big deal during that time? Well, it gets back to the idea of procreation and the idea of how they understood the concepts of marriage, which is more of that ancient understanding and even is is more layered than we have time to get into tonight. But ultimately, when, when you look at what is considered sin in the Bible, it's all the underlying idea is always you, you're hurting someone. You're hurting someone or you're not freeing someone. You, you know, you haven't forgiven someone. You're holding something still against them. Or you're you're continuously hurting them, and even in First Corinthians five, I mean, the word swindler is is the word I read. You know, we don't even know what a swindler is. They're like, what in the world's a swindler? I mean, you know, I've I've talked about I've never heard anybody being withdrawn from being greedy. What about someone? Oh, they're a swindler. That's that's grounds for disfellowship right there, you little <laughs> swindler. Um, you know, but once again, we're talking about someone who is extorting. Uh, that that's that's the idea. Um, you're, you're, you're cheating someone or you're taking advantage of someone. And that's why a lot of people, once again, believe that this man's under, it wasn't just that incestuous sin, but also he was taking advantage of the law. He was trying to take advantage of that money. He was probably a wealthy man. He was greedy. He was a swindler, he was extortioner. He was doing that through this, uh, through this either potential marriage or relationship, whatever it might be. And then also an idolater. I mean, when you get into what all that means and encompasses in the New Testament, um, it, it can it can mean a lot of different things. But the point is, I, I don't know of anyone who's been withdrawn from because they became an idolater. 
and not in the sense of the context of 1 Corinthians 5. So these things, it's not that they don't necessarily apply to us in some form or fashion, but the way we have applied them has just been shoddy. It's, it's, it's not the proper way to go about looking at the Bible and treating the Bible, especially with how it behaves within itself and internally. And then you go to 2 Thessalonians 3. And why was Paul upset? Because you had these uh, Christians, they thought Jesus was coming back. Um, kudos to Daniel Rogers, man. He thinks that uh, Jesus did come back, right? But I mean, either way, uh, you you have these uh, Christians who, who believe that Jesus was going to come back at any moment. So what do they do? They're going to quit working. I mean, why? if Jesus is going to come back and Paul's like, look, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat either. You're not providing for your family. You're not taking care of your family. If you're not willing to do those things, that's grounds. That's grounds to mark that person and and, and, and disassociate with them to the point of where they're willing to work again to get them back. So if we're going to talk about disfellowship, there you go. That's it. If you're not working because you think Jesus is coming back, if you're uh, involved in an incestuous relationship or you're stealing or you're taking somebody's money or you're mistreating somebody or you have there's been a personal offense, then we can start talking about what that looks like potentially if someone refuses to change or acknowledge their wrongdoing. But outside of that, man, there's just not a whole lot there. But yet that's, you know, the, the whole idea we speak where the Bible speaks. Yeah, right. You know, we uh, we fill in the blanks, man. We we, we try to we, we try to to write a whole lot more <laughs> a lot of times. Oh, yeah. And those blanks are plentiful, brother. I mean, whenever you're sitting here and you're talking about all of these things, contextually in which disfellowship can is is instructed to be engaged in or, or even descriptive even if we don't want to say it's instructive it's descriptive where i believe what jesus says is instructive i believe what paul said was instructive to the church in corinth and the church in thessalonica and to piggyback off what you said what you guys have both said is this is in this involves this process is one that should only involve those who are actively causing harm to others. And in terms of Thessalonica, one of the things Carl Ketcherside said in his uh, uh, book that he wrote years ago called Twisted Scriptures, it's great. It's available on Amazon on the Kindle store for like 99 cents. And it's worth way more than that. It's, it's worth at least a dollar 25, at least a buck 25. I'd say even, even a buck 50, man. I mean, let, <laughs> let's go with the, let's go with the, the big numbers here. But his point that he made is that these people that weren't working, they were causing harm to others because they were a burden on others. It wasn't yeah. just that they weren't providing to their own family. They were causing a burden to other members of the church because these other members of the church didn't want to leave their brethren out in the cold. They didn't want to leave them hungry. And so they were having to work not only to support their own family, but also to support these other folks who were being lazy and who weren't doing their part. And they were busybodies too. They yeah, were, they were, they were gossiping, talking bad about people, hurting others. Yeah. Yeah. And these people were were having to support them. And Paul's like, look, guys, this isn't going to work. Because here's the thing. If you have somebody who is just constantly using you, and, and Kevin, Brandon, I, I feel like I know you guys well enough to know that you guys are generous people. If I were to show up on your doorstep tomorrow because of some calamity, you're going to invite me into your home. You're going to give me a place to stay, whether it's the couch, whether it's the garage, whatever. You're going to put me up for the night. You're going to take care of me. You may even put me up for three or four days. But after about three or four months and I'm not working, I'm not buying any groceries, I'm not helping with the laundry, I'm leaving my shoes and my clothes all over the place. I mean, my wife will put up with that, but you guys probably aren't going to put up with that for me. 
after a while, you guys are going to get fed up and you're going to be like, whoa, this is, this isn't good, but I need to show mercy to him. I can't just kick him out into the cold. That's kind of what you have going on in Thessalonica. And you've got Paul saying, look, these cats that are doing this, it's causing discord. It's causing issues between you guys. You're having animosity. You know what? I'll be the bad guy. If these, if these cats aren't even going to work, they don't need to eat. Quit putting up with them. Quit putting them up. Make them get out on their butts and get to work and, and to get after it, to take care of themselves. That's essentially what's going on here. But, but, but like you said, Kevin, that's not what we do. I know the people that I have disfellowshipped from, uh, one was over, uh, there was a congregation, a big disagreement years before I was even a part of the churches of Christ in which there was a division that took place over the eldership and elder qualifications. And I recognized and upheld that disfellowship. Um, there was a situation shortly after I became a member of the churches of Christ in which a church down in Texas in the DFW Metroplex went in a more grace centered direction and they were excoriated and, the, the word in the brotherhood was as well. They're not being faithful to what God has demanded. And so his, their candlestick has been withdrawn and we need to recognize that. I upheld that too. If anybody was involved and still extended fellowship to them, well, then I would disfellowship them. I would preach and dog them publicly from the pulpit. I would name them by name and yeah. come down on them and, and openly discuss their quote sin. Um, I would draw from people over what I perceived at that time to be an unscriptural divorce and remarriage. I would draw from people over, you know, their perspective and their viewpoint over eschatology. You know, there there would have been a time that if Daniel Rogers and I were a part of the same group or the part of the same fellowship, that if he would have come out as an adherent to realize eschatology, I would have withdrawn from him. And it's those are the kinds of things that we withdraw from people over. Tell me one passage that we have discussed in which disfellowshipping is discussed where any of those things are mentioned. <laughs> Just one in, in, in throughout scripture. It's not there at all. And it's, so what, what I'm wondering, Brandon, um, from you or even Kevin, where do we get to that point? Like, how did we get to that point? I, I know that we've inherited that in our restoration movement DNA, especially in the late 1800s and, and at the hands of Daniel Summer and, and those things. But where do we get off doing that? Because we're not doing Bible things in Bible ways or calling things by Bible names whenever we do those things. So how, how is it that we have been able to justify it? I know it's, I inherited those beliefs from people because that's what I was taught. I know it's what you guys were taught to, but in, in your minds, like, where does that even come from? That's a great point, Lee. Um, one thing that really has that came forefront to me in, in my own experiences was just how hip, hypocritical we have been and people still are when it comes to choosing who we withdraw from and why we withdraw. As we make these cute categories, um, one of the ways that mm -hmm. to answer your question that we've done this is we we go to scripture and we find, you know, maybe it's 1 Corinthians 5 and we say, all right, 1 Corinthians 5 teaches that we withdraw from people over moral issues. Again, we've overgeneralized to begin with. So then we start heaping in everything that we classify as a moral issue. Yeah. And well, then we'll go to another passage and we'll say, well, this passage teaches that we should withdraw from people over worship issues. And then we start classifying or throwing in everything that we classify as a worship issue. And before long, we're withdrawn from people for all these array of crazy things that scripture never had in mind that Paul never had in mind that Jesus never had in mind because we've lumped in our own categories. 
uh, I've had some very specific discussions with some of my family members over these things. Uh, I can remember, uh, I have two sisters. They've, they both withdrawn from me and, uh, they're both younger than me, but the, the oldest of the two, uh, we corresponded through email a little bit uh, about our differences before she withdrew from me. And uh, I asked her, you know, why she was good, why she was in the process of withdrawing from me. She said, well, because you teach error on, uh, and you believe error on worship issues on, on, on issues of worship. Um, and you, and you teach and you believe error on, uh, issues of church organization. Well, what's interesting is, is her own husband believes, uh, that it's a sin to divorce for any reason. Uh, ad- adultery doesn't matter. Abandonment doesn't matter. Abuse doesn't matter. Divorce for any reason in his mind is sinful. Now, I- I'm not here to you know put him down for that conclusion. That's not the conclusion that I hold to, but that's his conclusion, which is way outside and way different than not only the churches that I've grown up in, the churches I've been a part of, but the very church that he preached for. Well, that is a moral issue. Divorce is a moral issue. Um, and so she's she's telling me she's going to withdraw from me because I am in error on moral issues. And she her own husband uh, believes basically everybody in his church is in error on moral issues. He also believed, uh, has some really odd uh, views on, odd in my opinion, odd views on, uh, on eldership qualifications and what a man had to do in order to be qualified to be an elder. Stuff that was way outside not only my church's views, but the church he taught for uh, and the church he preached for certainly didn't hold those views. And most of uh, my sister's extended family didn't hold those views. I don't think she even held those views. But they weren't withdrawing over what they believed everybody else's error was on an elder's qualification, which we would classify as a church organization issue. I mean, especially the churches that we came from, you know, we were the one and only true right church because we were organized like the New Testament said. Well, they basically, Amen. you know, they basically believed that uh, 95% of, uh, of their sister churches were unscripturally organized because they didn't agree with them on elder qualifications. So, you have so much hypocrisy in the way that we have withdrawn and other people have withdrawn from people because we just make up these classifications. Again, I have been accused by my family of being disrespectful of scripture and and not treating in a respectful manner. And I, I would turn it around and say, that is an extremely disrespectful way to treat scripture, to make up your own categories and take passages that specifically talk about very specific issues, make up our own categories and say, well, this passage applies to this category and you're violating something in this category. Therefore I'm withdrawn from you over it. Uh, again, uh, the hypocrisy that we see, um, and, and, and I could go on and on about my own experiences with my own family on things like head coverings and things like that, that certainly could fall into categories that they and others have made. We would draw from people over, but it's just, it's, it's sad. It's never ending. And, and it's kind of scary because you want to talk about being loose with scripture. That, that's extremely loose with scripture. And that type of looseness translates to disunity and division which no matter which biblical writer you consult, that is condemned. 
Amen. <laughs> and that's not a sarcastic amen either, man. Yeah. I, I agree a hundred percent. And, and this gets into another disfellowshipping passage that we haven't talked about yet. And Kevin, if you, if it's okay with you, I'd like to go ahead and just touch on that really quick because I know why Brandon, your sister believed that and why that was absolutely necessary because you're not, you're not, you know, you're holding to these false doctrines and these false ideas. And Kevin, whenever we first started this podcast, I know I'd mentioned to you that someone had come to me with concerns about us and with me cavorting and hosting a podcast with a false teacher and how I needed to cut it off and have nothing more to do with you. I needed to withdraw my fellowship from you. And it was based on second John nine. And there the apostle writes, everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, but goes beyond it, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the son. And the idea is, is, is that concept of the teaching of Christ is this umbrella statement that covers all of these doctrinal issues. But like you said, Brandon, we're incredibly inconsistent with how that's applied. And that's not even what that passage is talking about. Anyway, it doesn't have anything to do with pet doctrines or instrumental music or how many cups you use or on the Lord's table or, or whether or not women can preach or the qualifications of elders, et cetera, et cetera. It has nothing to do with that, that doctrine of Christ, or rather that teaching of Christ. If you look at the context of John and his epistles and John and his gospel, it has to do with the with the essential sonship and messiahship of Jesus himself. That's what John was writing to combat. If you have someone that is denying that Jesus is the son of God, you have someone that is denying Christ's essential messiahship, those are the kind of people that if they are in the church and they are influencing your church and influencing you, those are the people that you withdraw from. You don't invite them into your house. These, it's, There's a completely different context here than that. But we take that much like we do 1 Corinthians 5, much like we do 2 Thessalonians 3, much like we do Matthew 18. And what we end up doing is we create this construct so that we're able and allowed to disfellowship or even bully. We weaponize the Bible, Kevin, as you're fond of saying, to browbeat others into submission and to browbeat them into uniformity with our own opinion. And yeah. and and whenever we do that, it's it's ironic because we're often accused of being fast and loose with scripture, and yet you have to be pretty fast and loose with scripture to arrive at those conclusions. Yeah, and I want to put a, a, another wrinkle in in all of this conversation too, because when we talk about the New Testament and how Paul writes situationally, what that simply means is that Paul is addressing his audience. He's he's not giving universal law or universal instruction. And I've talked about this some on some of our other podcasts that, you know, Paul told the church at Corinth that to the men not to be circumcised. And then he had Timothy circumcised. Um, and, you know, so it's like, well, which is it, Paul? And uh, the answer is, well, it's you're dealing with different situations. Paul tells the church, the churches of Galatia, not to celebrate these uh, holidays, these Jewish holidays. Uh, but then he tells the church at Rome they can celebrate the holidays. Uh, Paul tells the church at Ephesus that if there's widows, they need to remarry. He tells the church at Corinth if there's widows, they don't need to re- be, they don't need to remarry. Uh, so, so when you try to take every quote unquote everything the Bible says about a topic, or even everything Paul says about a topic, you oftentimes find conflicting information because Paul's not trying. We. Sometimes I question if there should ever be a canon. <laughs> yes, I said it, but I really do question that. You and, for the, and for those who go, oh, I can't believe you. Well, just keep in mind, 
uh, uninspired humans four to five hundred years later are the ones who put this thing together, and it included the apocrypha. So let's let's just put that out there. But the uh, the point that I'm making is that because we have everything in one volume, it makes it seem as if it's supposed to be one volume, and it's not. It's not. I mean, I mean, we can say, well, the Holy Spirit had a you know, had had his hand in, and I have no problem saying all that. But the reason why I say I question it is because having all of these letters in one, we try to make it one big letter. You know, we even call it the New Testament. Um, and you know, it's funny because we talk about the New Covenant, but the New Testament wasn't wasn't written until after Jesus, and so you know, many years after Jesus, thirty at least thirty years, twenty to thirty years, when it even started to be penned. So when you think about this, Paul is is addressing different situations, and here's the wrinkle I wanted to bring up. What Paul says to the church at Corinth about this situation when it comes to quote unquote withdrawing is very different than what he says to the churches, uh, to the church in Thessalonica about withdrawing. When you look at First Corinthians five, Paul's using very strong language: deliver them to deliver them to Satan. So that their, you know, that their flesh will be destroyed, or, or you know, their their spirit may be saved, and all this other type of stuff. And he's literally just using this language like, "Let them go, just just no more, um, just just give them over to Satan." And then you come to what Paul says in the Second Thessalonians. He's like, "Well, don't don't treat them as an enemy, <laughs> admonish them as a brother." Well, how can I admonish someone as a brother if I'm not seeing them? If I have delivered somebody up, I'm like, look, I would admonish you as a brother, but I can't even come over to your house and have chips and, and hot dogs anymore because Paul said I can't do that. Paul is literally giving d- different instructions here. And so even what Paul has to say about disfellowship and withdrawal is not uniform. And I think that just has to be put out there because to me, that's another wrinkle in how we understand Scripture. But anyway... Um, We'll, we'll move on, kind of, because we want to discuss one more one more thing before. Any any comments on that before we move on? No, I, I think that that multivocality is is an essential point that needs to be considered because it, we have to recognize that Paul didn't agree with Paul all the time. I mean, if we take a strict literalist view and we take a super homogenous view of what the New Testament is then we're forced to deal with some of those tensions in a way that can make us uncomfortable. It's like, well, do we go with what Paul said here? Do we go with what Paul said there? But whenever we view each of these letters as a standalone letter in which there may be some general references to other churches or other letters, but those are the exception to the rule. If we recognize them as works that stand on their own and that were compiled later, just like you said, some four to 500 years after you know, everything was written and these fellows sat down and decided what we were going to include and what we weren't. Whenever we see it in that way, well, then there is no tension. There is no contradiction. We recognize that there is an essential level of, of specificity that is baked into all of this. You know, what would work for Galatia ain't necessarily going to work for Corinth. Some of the things that would work in one church are, are going to work everywhere, but by and large, in, in terms of the specifics, what works in one area, it may not work somewhere else. And I mean, well, we even see that in our day and time now. Well, it kind of goes back to the becoming all things to all human principle that that Paul talks about, where you know that's Paul demonstrates becoming all things to all all people, uh, because he's not giving the same instruction to everybody everywhere, and. It's fallacious of us to go to the New Testament, take one verse, one passage, and then say, well, hey, this is how everyone should act. This is what everyone should do. And then on top of that, not even properly apply it, but overextend it 
and call it a principle. Because <laughs> if you call something a principle, you know, it's got to be biblical. Well, it's not what the Bible says, but there's a principle. And I do believe in principles. Don't get me wrong. But oftentimes we're, we're overextending certain passages and or we're trying to make everything fit. You can't make don't eat with a person, don't have anything to do with them. Uh, don't don't just completely uh, just just banish them, deliver them to Satan. You can't harmonize that with admonish them as a brother or sister because I can't admonish you if I'm not around you. And if I've delivered you to Satan for the destruction of your flesh, whatever that means, which is we're not going to get into that tonight. That's another interesting topic. But if if I've done that and I'm not eating with you, I'm not hanging out with you, I'm not going to be able to admonish you. They didn't have Facebook. They couldn't send little encouraging Bible verses. Hey, I just want to admonish you today. Here's, here's an encouraging verse. No, they were kicked out of their community, man. And so to say that that's the same thing as admonishing that person, if you kick somebody out of the community, you ain't going to be seeing them. You're not going to be able to admonish them. In fact, you're not supposed to be. So those two things, what Paul says, when you look at them in context, they are not harmonizable. Um, but what they are are both from Paul because they're dealing with different situations. Paul's becoming all things to all people. But um, but but let's 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 move to this here, um, Brandon. I, I want to ask you about this. In your case, in your experience, and perhaps even in our experiences, when we were quote unquote withdrawing from people, how much of that do you think is is more of a a crutch to dismiss people who have difficult questions? Yes, Kevin. I think at times uh, it is a crutch for some people. You can't say that for everyone. Um, and I know that that would certainly be painting with too broad a brush to say that. But yes, I, in, in my own personal experiences, I know that I have been guilty of that. And I know that uh, some of my family who has withdrawn from me was guilty of that um, specific instance. I, I remember my parents coming to have a quote unquote Bible study with me when I was going astray in, in their mind. And uh, they had had six or eight weeks to talk to their preacher and for him to provide them all the answers to, uh, you know, the, the way I was thinking and my own arguments and, and reasons for uh, taking the, the direction that I was taking. And uh, so they came over to, you know, kind of put me in my place in a, in a nice way with, uh, with all those reasonings from their preacher. I had no idea what they were going to say, but at the end of the discussion, it seemed pretty clear to me that um, they really didn't have anything of any weight or value. And, uh, in fact, a couple different times I kind of put, put a question back to them and said, you know, this is pretty clear what scripture teaches. One, for instance, is, uh, they believe you have to take the Lord's supper on Sunday, every Sunday and only on Sunday. And, uh, I, I didn't hold that position. And, uh, my dad had said, you know, well, cause I had said, well, Jesus, you know, instituted or, or, did the Lord's Supper on the very first time on either a Thursday or Friday night in Matthew chapter 26. And uh, my dad, through a bunch of hermeneutical gymnastics, tried to tried to claim that, well, Matthew 26 doesn't count when it comes to uh, when it comes to teachings on the Lord's Supper. It's it's unauthoritative. I said, really? He said, yeah, it, it doesn't count because it was before Jesus died. Therefore, it's not a part of the new covenant. Therefore, it doesn't count. I said, okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> when he said that, I thought, okay, well. I guarantee I, I, Matthew 19. You know, I hate in these discussions to. Yeah, it, it does. It does. I, I hate in these discussions to be sarcastic, but it's, it was one of those things that's like, all right, well, you just walked into a major contradiction. You don't know what you're going to, you're not going to be able to get out of. I said, okay. 
because they also prescribe to the view that when you take the Lord's Supper, you have to use unleavened bread. Can't be any other kind of bread. Has to be unleavened bread. Well, the only way you can come to that conclusion is from Matthew 26, because Jesus took unleavened bread because we know it was the Passover. We have to go back to the Old Testament to, to decipher that. But every other teaching on the Lord's Supper in the New Testament is just as bread. So he has to have Matthew chapter 26 to have unleavened bread and to be able to specify that it has to be unleavened bread. If Matthew 26 is not authoritative, then you can use whatever bread you want because there's no other specific uh, passage in the New Testament that says you have to use unleavened bread. Uh, Side point, I don't believe you have to use unleavened bread. But anyway, um, so I posed that to him. I said, so then I guess we can use whatever bread we want. Oh, no, no, we have to use unleavened bread because that's what Jesus used in Matthew 26. And I said, well, you just told me that Matthew 26 doesn't count. Uh, no answer, no response. Um, up until the day he died, no answer, no response. Never went, nobody ever has given me one, which is fine. Um, but they continued to withdraw anyway, in spite of not having answers to what I believe are very valid questions and very valid objections. Um, I, I could go on and on with more stories like this, you know, my sisters, both of them were guilty of the same thing. You can pose very direct questions. People don't have answers, and yet they continue to withdraw anyway. Uh, that leaves you with, you know, really kind of only two options. One is, well, they just want to get out of the difficult conversation. The easy way is to just disfellowship you. Or number two, they're just dishonest. And, and so either one, whichever path you want to go with that, uh, I don't think uh, is very flattering. Um, and, and I've seen it over and over and yeah. again, I've been guilty too. um, been posed questions I didn't want to answer cause they were outside my comfort zone. And so it's easier to dismiss someone. And the easiest way to permanently dismiss someone is to withdraw from them. Now, if they're a close family member, that's obviously more difficult. But when we're talking about people in our congregation or we're talking about preachers from distances away, if you don't want to have to deal with things they're bringing up questions they're asking, well, man, just mark them as a false teacher and move on. Um, and so I would caution anyone who's ever, who, who has ever considered withdrawing from somebody or could be considered withdrawing from somebody, you better make sure that you have answered every question that you have been as honest as you can be before you pull the trigger, because it's very possible that we might be using withdrawal as a crutch just to avoid somewhere that we need to change or an inconsistency in our own reasoning. And again, when we choose division over difficult conversations. We are not walking the path of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whenever that's the case, we're essentially rending the body of Christ asunder because we can't fathom or stomach. And I, I'm speaking for myself here because like you, Brandon, I've been there where I have had difficult questions posed to me that I could not answer. And it, it, I couldn't answer within the framework that I was operating in at the time. And it's, it's so interesting to hear you say that because it's, it's reflective and it strongly resembles my experience too. And I'm fortunate in that no close family members have, have fully withdrawn from me or my wife. I mean, there's definitely tension in the relationships, um, but it's, it's so it's so disheartening to try to have a conversation with somebody 
to bring up these difficulties. And for me, it wasn't even in, in a gotcha sense. Like I'm not trying to postulate some set of, of syllogism so that I can trap somebody in some place and prove my mental and intellectual superiority. Because dude, there are times where my intellectual wherewithal is, is about equal to my five-year-old. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. I'm, it's, I'm, there, there are things that I struggle with. There are things that I don't know. There are things I can't figure out. And in that process, just a little while ago, not even a year and a half, two years ago, you know, I'm trying to have these conversations with people and I'm not getting anywhere because, you know, one of the people that I had this conversation with that brought up how Kevin's a false teacher and that Pendergrass, you need to get away from him. He's, he's a false teacher. And second John nine says, you don't wish him Godspeed and you're just extending fellowship to him. You know, there were some questions that I asked him just to one to illustrate some of the inconsistencies, but also because I I'm like, I don't know. And then there are other questions that I had already settled in my mind that I wanted to ask him in in an attempt to get him to think, not necessarily to prove him wrong, because that's that's not what I was about, but to just generate some thought and some reflection. And you just don't get any, it's like, well, you know, instead of thinking about those things, well, you need to talk to someone who's a faithful preacher. You need to talk about this and well, and then this is the answer. Well, have you thought about this? And I'm like, brother, all of these answers are, or conclusions or, um, resolutions that you have presented. I mean, what you're saying is the party line that I have preached from the pulpit for 10 or 12 years now. I mean, do you think I'm not going to ask these other people some of these things that I've already resolved in my own mind and I'm at peace with now? Do, do you not think I know what the the rote scripted answer is, for lack of a better term? Do you think that I just don't understand that? It's like I know what that answer is and I find it wanting. I find it lacking. And I, I think that in at some point and in some way, I, I think, Kevin, what you said is absolutely right. And Brandon, I'm in agreement, too, that it does become a crutch or it becomes an easy escape from those difficult conversations. And I think it's because whenever so much of your worldview and so much of your faith and your spirituality is predicated upon certainty, anything that threatens to upend that certainty, it's a threat. It's a threat yeah. to your emotional well-being. That cognitive dissonance creates problems. I mean, I've, I dealt with anxiety. I had panic attacks, depression, all of that because that cognitive dissonance just kept going and going and going until I finally sat down and dealt with it, until I finally really started to study it out and it's, it's a really hard place to be. And there's a lot of people, they don't want to have their faith challenged in that way because they have the answers. And I mean, you guys know this as well as I do. It's a way more comfortable place to be. And it's a way easier place to be when you quote, have all the answers and you have it all figured out with 100% yep. certainty. So as we begin to wrap this up, I, th I think this has been a good conversation, but I, I, I think that we've pretty much said what we wanted to say on this. Withdrawing fellowship is one of those things that we should not enter into lightly. It's not something that we should consider lightly, but it's often the, like, the first or second thing that we do. We automatically want to jump to that concept of, of well, you, you believe this or that or whatever else, I'm going to withdraw from you. What are some strategies in your mind, Kevin, and in your mind, Brandon, that one can utilize, not if they're on the offense, because we've talked a lot about being on offense and being the one doing the disfellowshipping and how that's really not something we really should even do unless there's something really egregious, some egregious harm being done. 
But what if you're on the defense? What if you're on the receiving end? Because I know there for a while, there was some bitterness in that acute stage whenever I was being withdrawn from and I was going through that. And Brandon, I could, I would fully understand in your situation if there was some bitterness present as well. And Kevin, you and I talked about bitterness a few weeks ago, but what are some practical pieces of advice that you guys think would be valuable or pertinent to our listeners if they find themselves, as many of them have contacted us and shared with us, if they're on the receiving end of being disfellowshipped inappropriately or for an unscriptural reason, a truly unscriptural reason, what are some ways that they can navigate those waters? I would uh, begin by saying love and kindness never fails um, in spite of when you're being attacked. Um, I think Paul says something about heaping coals of fire. Um, and I think not, not for the, not for the sake of hurting other someone else, but uh, to not return evil for evil. Um, I know that in my own experience, uh, it was traumatic as was emotional. Um, you know, we're, we're six or seven years in almost at this point. Um, and there's still, you know, I, I'm pretty good, but there's still emotional days. There's still things that are hard. Um, I did not handle everything as well as I would have liked to, um, not as graceful as I would like to have been. Um, nothing major. Um, I spent a, I made a lot of effort to try to change, to try to stop what was happening. And my experience has been when someone chooses to withdraw from you, there's not usually much you can do to stop that. Um, in my case, I could see it coming. Um, when you try to, I'm a guy who likes to control. Uh, I know Kevin's kind of that way. We like our control. Lee, I don't know about you. Maybe you're more passive when it comes to that. We like to control the outcome in our life. Um, and so when you see your world is falling apart, cause you're going to be withdrawn from, you want to try to take that bull by the horns and you want to try to change that. Um, and oftentimes that makes things worse. Um, I wish I had been yeah. a little bit more passive. I wish that I had, I, I was very proactive. I went to see my dad on a couple of occasions. Um, I went, I sent emails, I wrote letters, um, I was very proactive in trying to point out their error in what they were doing, not because I, I wanted to, you know, I, not because I wanted to say I'm right and you're wrong, but because I was trying to stop the withdrawal process. And, and in my mind, the only way to do that was to show them that I'm not in the error that you think I am. And going back, I wish I had just loved them better. Uh, I wish I had just been. I felt like I was kind, but I was very direct in some of the things that I said. And I know that those things were interpreted as hurtful. Um, they were all true and they came from a place of, of, uh, passion. And they came from a place of a son who didn't want to see his, his family fall apart. Um, but some of those pleas were interpreted as hurtful. Uh, some of those pleas were interpreted as, um, as accusations and, and maybe they were to some degree, I wish, and, and I received that guidance. I reached out to a, a, a guy I consider my friend. I don't know him very well. We've only spoken in person a couple times and through email many times. His name's Patrick Mead. If you can ever get Patrick Mead on your podcast, he'd be a great guy to talk to. Um, well, that may or may not be in the works, but we'll oh, just leave it at that. Wonderful. Okay. Well, uh, he is. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Sorry, He's kind of dealt with some. Yes, yes. That was my in his Irish accent. Yeah, impersonation there, yeah. <laughs> it sounded a little bit more like uh, maybe from the Middle East, but we won't. That's okay. Um, 
But I reached out to him because he had been through a similar experience, and that was his guidance. His guidance was twofold. Just be kind and love them as best you can. And his second part of his advice was be firm. Because a lot of times people use withdrawal, especially when they're using it in a wrong way, they use it to try to control and manipulate. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's easy to let that drive you crazy. Um, It's easy to let that make you feel guilty. It's easy to let that cause, let that play into your decision-making rather than sound judgment. And um, I think I did that part pretty well. Um, You know, not allowing myself to be manipulated. I wish I had been just over the top with love and kindness because at the end of the day, anybody who's withdraws from you, if they're ever going to change, if they're ever going to unwithdraw from you or uh, undisfellowship you, love and kindness is going to be the the route that brings them back to you. Um, I know Kevin has probably has a, I know he has a really good story about a, a friend of his that, you know, marked him as a false teacher and he, Kevin really showed kindness and love and how that relationship has since been restored. Um, I don't believe my relationships with my family can be restored just based on where they're at. Um, maybe I shouldn't say that nothing's impossible with God, but um, kindness and love always wins. Even if it doesn't change the major outcome, it always leaves the door open and it always leaves you looking more like Jesus rather than being combative with those who are wrongfully withdrawing from you. Yeah, and I, I second everything you said, uh, Brandon. When I was first changing, <clears throat> I talked to Rubel Shelley, which has another name, someone else I think we need to get on our program if we can. But I called him up after having previous conversations with him that were not too too nice <laughs> from my from my end. <laughs> but I was I think that's putting it mildly based on what you've uh, shared with me. You know, actually, it's funny because he didn't even remember him because he says that he said a lot of people. Well, I, I, he said he somewhat remembered me, but I would call him up just challenging for challenging him to do do public debates and things of that nature. And, but I I called him up this one time when I finally was changing and just said, you know, what, what do you, what do you suggest? Because I am going to to get attacked, just like I used to attack people. What what? How should I respond? Because at that point in time, I still wanted to fight. I was still saw myself as a fighter and a defender of the truth. And and I'll never forget what he said. I honestly did not take his advice up front. I wish I had. I do now. I try to anyway. He said the one piece of advice he would give me is this. He said, "Always be kind. You'll never regret it." He said, there's going to be many times when you look back on your life and you regret telling it like it was or giving it to somebody. He said, it may have felt good in the moment, but there's going to be times you're always going to look back and have moments you regret that type of stuff. He said, you'll never look back and think, hmm, I'm really upset that I was kind to that person. He said, you're, you never you never regret being kind. And I, that, that's just really stuck with me. Just really the exact same thing Brandon just said. I just want to reiterate because, you know, we've, we've talked in this conversation very candidly, openly about our experiences. And I don't want anybody coming away thinking that we were trying to be sarcastic or rude to anybody we were discussing or, or anything of that nature. Because to me, that dismantles our whole purpose of what we're trying to do when we explore faith and pursue grace, because we're trying to get people to engage in critical thoughts. And I'm trying to constantly 
engage myself in critical thought. And it's difficult because when you've been taught to see something a certain way for so long, it can be hard. And when you attack someone who's attacking you, that doesn't do anything to help with a good conversation. It doesn't bear good fruit. It doesn't establish any type of critical thinking or engagement. If anything, it just drives wedges between each individual. And it just makes makes the two feel like they're both justified in what they're doing. And I have tried to speak to the level of, of individuals who have withdrawn from me. And I, I have friends to this day who've withdrawn from me. And we talk every now and then. Um, a couple of them we've even eaten together. So, you know, I don't know if they should be withdrawn from for, for violating First Corinthians 5. But uh, it's a joke, by the way. Um, but, you know, as, as, we, as we've had conversation, you know, I've just told them, I understand why you have to do what you do. I don't agree with it. I don't like it. And I, I wish you wouldn't. But I understand it. And if we can understand one another, doesn't mean we have to agree with it. But if we can understand one another and where it's coming from, and Brandon, I know that you've been able to make a lot of peace with your own dad because you realized that he was doing what he thought he needed to be doing. You know, your family's doing to this day what they think they're supposed to be doing. They're doing it out of conviction. They're doing it out of what I believe to be a misguided conviction, a misguided understanding of love. But it is their understanding. And so we have to take that into account and try to speak their language and just say, look, I, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way. I understand why you have to do what you have to do. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm not going to hold back. Uh, I'm, I'm, excuse me, I'm not going to hold you back from doing that, but I'm always going to try to be kind and uh, be considerate, show compassion, show mercy to you. And, and I, sometimes I even give them the benefit of the Look, I could be wrong. I, you know what? I, I may be wrong on all these things that I'm now. It's a possibility, but I cannot go against my conviction no matter how much someone else wants me to. And that's really what it boils down to. I tell so, and Brandon, you you brought this point up uh, a while back when you were going through this. You said, you know, I'm actually being told to be dishonest at the end of the day. That's the implication, right? I mean, they're telling you, we know you believe this, but you shouldn't. So change your mind. And that happened with Daniel Rogers when his dad and granddad. Uh, who were elders at the church, the only two elders, just they gave him 30 days to change his mind. Well, I mean, like, what What if you don't? What if after 30 days you go, I, I'm not convinced of that. Are you asking me to lie? Are you asking me to be dishonest? <laughs> well, it reminds me of Galileo with with the whole Galileo affair whenever he stood before the, the Inquisition and they told him, you know, you can't, it, it wasn't enough for him to not promote this. You can't yeah. believe this. And so he he had to verbally recant or be tortured and put to death, and yet it's said under his breath. Yeah, it <laughs> yeah as he anyway, was walking sorry, out of the courtroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man! But anyway, yeah. That that's just I would just reiterate and agree with uh, affirm everything Brandon just said. Is always be loving, always be kind, um, and sometimes not always, but sometimes that can reverse the action. Sometimes that, or it makes it very difficult. Brandon talked about someone who. Withdrew from me, and in large part, that was that was my own doing because I backed them in a corner. I'm, I told them they were inconsistent if they didn't withdraw from me, so they felt like they had to. Um, and so, uh, you know, don't ever force someone's hand, right? Like, let them kind of come to their own inconsistencies with 
with that, just continue to be loving, continue to be kind, and then let them make their decisions based upon what they think is best. And that's all we can. And that's all I can ask them to do. I, I don't want them to ask me to be dishonest with my conviction. And I don't want them to be dishonest with their conviction. And that, that is the, that that's the difficult position people find themselves in. Well, and I can only just say that I agree with what both of you have said, because with you guys having experienced what you can what you had experienced and Brandon, even though I wasn't fully privy to that. And even though our conversation, when I was going through that process myself was, was limited, Kevin, you were there for a lot of this and in you and I talked a lot whenever this was going on with me and to our listeners, I just want to let you guys know that this advice that Brandon and Kevin gave, I was able to learn from their mistakes and I was able to utilize that advice that they just gave and, and not perfectly. And there were times where things got tense and intense, but they never really got bad. I, I can't really say that whenever I was having these conversations with other people. But I did really try to take to heart, Kevin, what you said and the advice that Rubel Shelley had given you, because that's the advice you gave me. You know, there was one day where I had this big, long diatribe written out. It was like three or four pages. And I think I asked you to look over it and I asked someone else to look over it. And, and the feedback I got was as well, is it true? Yeah, it's true. But is it kind? And, and what's your ultimate goal here? Is your ultimate goal to force someone to think like you? Is your ultimate goal to, to have a debate or win, quote, an argument? Or is your goal to show the love of Jesus to somebody? And to practice this new grace that you've discovered that you're preaching now. And following that advice has been incredibly helpful for me as I have gone through this process a little later than you guys have. So to our listeners, I just want to say what they're saying isn't just pie in the sky stuff. It's not this schmarmy, namby-pamby theology of, oh, yeah, of course you got to love each other. But I'm hurting and these people are trying to hurt me and I want to lash back at them. Well, don't do that. Do what Jesus said. Turn that other cheek. Like Brandon said, you know, he's quoting Paul about, you know, showing that kindness. It's a heaping of coals of fire over their head. And I got to say this, too. If your motivation is, well, I'm just going to be kind to him so I can heap those coals of fire on their head. Well, you probably need to check yourself, too, because that's not the right motivation. It's anyway, the point being, guys, it's uh, what you've said, I think, is absolutely right. Love always wins. Kindness always wins. That's the best approach to take. So as we wrap up this conversation, is there anything else you guys want to share? Um, if uh, it's been a great conversation, guys. I was a little, honestly, a little cautious when we came into this because, like I said before, I don't have all the answers on this issue and certainly not sure where I stand on everything. But it's been a great and fun conversation. Uh, I've enjoyed it and learned some stuff and uh, look forward to trying to figure it out a little bit, a little bit more. Well, brother, I'm looking forward to having you back on again in the future. Whenever Kevin said, whenever he suggested, hey, let's talk about this. I was like, great. Then he messaged me a couple of days later and said, yeah. Hey, Brandon said he'd come on. I was like, yes. I got pumped up. I was excited because I love having you on, brother. You're a fun yeah, guest. Yeah, Brandon, I'm glad. Well, I've loved to... coming on. It's not, necessarily a, it's not necessarily a fun subject, but I've had a great time being here. Yeah. Well, thanks. Well, no, brother. I was just gonna Kevin, s- what you got, man? What's your, what are your parting oh, well, words for everybody? I was just going to say that I'm glad Brandon, you were able to come on and join us. And you know, we've, we've shared a lot of information, um, the tonight and discussed a lot of different topics. And one thing that we try to really emphasize is that we are not the authority. We are simply just trying to throw out thoughts and ideas and that we can be corrected, uh, at any time. 
um, we're constantly trying to, to figure out things. And so when we throw out possibilities, alternatives, different perspectives, ideas, it doesn't necessarily mean that we always agree with them, but that they're just out there and that there are good thinkers, thought leaders, scholars who have brought some of these points to the forefront. And we need to be willing to at least consider those things. And I, I think all in all, when someone just asked me about my view on disfellowship, you know, my, my main point is if there, there are times the, the, in my view where I'm currently at, which this could change at any time, but where I'm currently at is just to summarize when there is someone who is being abused, when someone is put in a toxic situation personally, or when there is a church that is being negatively impacted by someone's behavior, those are the type of situations where I do think that there needs to to be consideration of of discipline. Now, how that how one goes about doing that, as I said earlier, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, all have little different caveats to them. <laughs> one says don't eat. Uh, one says treat them like tax collectors, which Jesus ate with. And then another one says admonish them as a brother. So you, you have some of these different um, ideas even within the text of withdrawal. And so I think instead of trying to like put all these together to, to formulate one conclusion, we can almost look at these and say, well, here are some different, you know, here's some different ideas presented in scripture and some, uh, some, some instructions that were given uh, by Jesus and Paul for different churches. And, and this is the different ways he said to handle this here. How, how then should we handle our situation? And, you know, there's a lot of things we didn't even get into time. How, how long do you wait if someone is being disruptive? How long do you wait? You wait a week, year, two years? I mean, when do you, when do the, when are those lines drawn? And I, that's where the Bible just doesn't have really much of anything to say about it. And we have to seek counsel. We have to look at the experience, become all things to all humans. And we have to do the best we can with the situation that we're in. But ultimately, I think just allowing those underlying thoughts to be our guide of making sure we understand why lines have to be drawn is uh, is for protection. And even Paul in First Corinthians five talked about a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It was affecting the church as well. So um, when you, even when you do withdraw, because I still do believe, and we didn't really, we got more into the other side of it, but I do still think that there are times uh, when withdrawal needs to happen. But I vehemently disagree with the way that I have seen it happen <laughs> and over over the types of topics yeah, and yeah. ideas that is, it has often hap uh, happened over. And so it, that's why it's a pretty convoluted topic at times because of how it's been dealt with. And so I just say all that to say, yes, there are toxic relationships, toxic individuals. We have to be careful with how we deal with them, especially once we've tried to work with them and it doesn't work. Um but at the end of the day, let's be careful with how we read the Bible. Let's be very careful with how we look at text and don't just assume, oh, a quick reading, that's that's always the best. In fact, usually that's the worst um, because that's not the way that the Bible was written. And uh, it wasn't even written to you or to me to begin with. And so we have to we have to understand that. But anyway, we could go all, all night about that type of stuff. But it is just a matter of how we read the Bible and how we read Scripture and the importance of that. But I don't want anyone listening to this going away saying, oh, well, Kevin and Brandon and Lee, they don't think that you know lines should ever be drawn. I certainly do. I uh, certainly do. Jesus drew lines, but oftentimes not with the people that we would 
uh, think he should have. He, he drew lines oftentimes with the religious elite, which does cause me to wonder if perhaps we're not drawing as many lines as we need to at times with um, with those who do claim to be Christ followers who certainly don't act like it. Well, we can just disfellowship everyone and then there we just go. don't have to worry about it. Fellowship ourselves. I mean, that's an option too. <laughs> <laughs> no, and and I want to say this just in closing as we wrap this up. And I know I've said we're going to wrap this up like what three times now, but um whenever you said we're not the experts, guys, listeners, this has been three guys. We have no notes for this. Like we went into this, we usually have a few little notes, maybe a page, page and a half of bullet points of points that we definitely want to hit, things we want to say, scriptures we want to read. We went into this with no notes. What you have heard is a genuine conversation off the cuff between three Christians who love God, who love one another and want to see the church flourish. We want to see all of God's people everywhere across all denominational lines excel in their lives and do extremely well and grow in in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And what this conversation has modeled is we know what fellowship shouldn't be, or rather what disfellowship shouldn't be, but we're not even a hundred percent sure on what disfellowship should be. I mean, we agree that, yeah, there are times where lines need to be drawn, but we, we, we have maybe an idea of what those look like, but we don't know. I mean, Brandon doesn't really know where he stands on it. Kevin doesn't know where he stands on it. I don't know where I stand on it, but one thing that I do know, is that I would much rather err on the side of mercy than I would judgment. And I think that if we go into it with a humble posture with all of our brethren and we realize our own potential for culpability in whatever situation we find ourselves in, that humility goes a long way. So in everything, kindness and love. Lee, and I was just going to say to to add to that uh, really good conclusion, I wanted to butcher that for you and say, if there ever is a man in your church— who is uh, having sex with his um, stepmother in order to, um, to to get her dowry, then yeah, I, I think we, we might could start having a conversation there about First Corinthians 5, but it uh, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't happen very Touché. often. Touché. Yeah, it, it's very rare. But Brandon, once again, brother, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your heart and sharing your story. I, I know you had said before we hit record that it's all on the table. You've talked about it publicly before, but man, your story is a heart wrenching story, but there's a lot of hope there too, to see you it, with it, all the pain that that process put you through and that you still experience even now and to see the peace you have in spite of that pain. It, it really is an encouragement and to see how someone like you, someone like Kevin, someone like, someone like me, legalists of the highest degree, how we can change. It gives me hope that maybe just maybe that change can have a ripple effect and others can change within the churches of Christ or even in any other denomination that, that believes and practices this fellowship in that sense, that there's a possibility there for everybody and that the church universal will be better off for it. So thank you again, Kevin, thank you again for a great conversation and to our listeners. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for sharing this podcast. We're growing organically. We're growing a little bit every month. We're rapidly approaching 40,000 downloads, which is really, really cool. We're excited about that. And we want that to continue to grow. 
We have some really good ideas uh, for what we can do to help this grow in the future. We have some plans to to uh, begin that process of growth. And hopefully, Brandon, it'll give you another more steady platform with which you can share your thoughts and your insights because I appreciate them. And if no one else does, I'd like to read about them or hear about them. But in any case, thank you all so much. Give us that five-star review on iTunes. Share our podcast with your friends. Share it with your neighbors. Share it with folks in your church. Anyone that you believe could benefit from it, please share it with them. We do it for you guys. We do it uh, largely because we love all of you. And if any of you are experiencing what we have experienced, we want to give you some hope to know that there is a better way forward and there are better days ahead. So thank you all very much and have a wonderful, wonderful day.